Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast where we talk about all things therapists and picking up on last week's episode, responding to uh, user review. We felt it uh, getting a little more nuanced in a couple of things, but this review sparked a couple of ideas. Check out last week's episode about therapy interfering behaviors. We also wanted to dive into a little bit more of the the firing clients, maybe terminating prematurely before clients end up getting to their goals. We might want to call this episode firing your clients ethically part 1.5. Like it's... (laughs) Because this does help us dive into a little bit more of some situations where this comes up. We'll talk about this from a clinical approach. We'll talk about this as far as broadly some of the ways that I've heard ethics committees talk about bad therapy when clients have felt abandoned by therapists, this kind of stuff. So Katie and I wanted to talk about what are some times where we've heard therapists quote unquote, firing their clients, looking to terminate prematurely, referring out, et cetera. So Katie, what is first on our list today? The most frequent one that I've seen that I've experienced is this idea of a client having a clinical need that either pops up or was unassessed, you know, was inappropriately assessed at the beginning that I don't feel capable to handle. And I see this a lot where folks will say, well, this person has psychosis or they have an eating disorder or they have substance abuse or they have something and I'm not an expert in it. And so I am going to refer them out. And there have been times when I've chosen to refer out and there have been times when I have kept the clients and, and created a treatment team around myself so that there was expertise present. But I see that a lot. I think people get very worried, and and sometimes with good reason, that if they keep a client for whom they don't have the appropriate clinical expertise, that they will be hurting the client. And so they then terminate the client, which can mean that the client feels abandoned because they, especially if they've already developed a relationship with you, or if they had difficulty finding a therapist in the first place and, and there's not great referrals. So I think that's potentially where we start is... When a therapist feels like this is not my expertise, but they've already shown up in your office either for one session or for 10 sessions, and this is a new clinical issue that pops up. So Katie and I, before recording today, we were talking about a couple of different areas where this has come up in our careers. And 
part of managing some of these particular situations is having honest discussions with clients. This might be something where it's a lot easier when it's in those first couple of sessions of, hey, we don't have a real strong therapeutic relationship, but I don't have the skills to be able to help with the goals that you're coming in here with. And especially if they're maybe more high risk or specialized sort of treatments. You brought up about uh, eating disorders before the Mm -hmm. show was recording here. These get a little bit trickier when you're much deeper into relationships with clients. Absolutely. And for instance, eating disorders that show up in clients after a couple of years of treatment where you have a very strong relationship with a client and it might be outside of your wheelhouse. Uh, I've had a couple of clients that I've worked with for a very long time that have eventually uh, started exploring transgender identities and things that are not necessarily within the specifics of my specialties, but feeling the confidence in a therapeutic relationship and and knowing what it's like working with me over the long term to begin to explore some of these new identities. And I think in the way that Katie and I have talked about this is a lot of times it's not necessarily firing those clients, but it's helping to be able to develop a treatment team of specialists around who's working with those clients to be able to help the clients reach their goals while also still having the emotional space and the trust in the relationship that they know that they're going to be taken care of. For me, I see it as a very attachment-based style of therapy that I do because I think I do longer-term therapy. It's very relationship-based. And so if I can't be the expert in the room with my client, I act as a trusted person in their life who's going to figure it out. And I'm going to get the right people around them and I'm going to advocate for them. Some of this comes from my history of doing more on the the kind of social work end of pulling together treatment teams and resources and advocating for my clients. But there are a number of times throughout my career where something has come into my client's life. We have a very strong relationship and I start doing research. I start gathering people around them and the work that I do may be impacted by that. There may be things that I bring in that that is relevant to that particular treatment issue, but it may also be just me talking with them about like, how's it going with this specialist? How are you taking care of yourself? What do I need to know to support you during this time? You know, it's it's something where it has to be within the relationship because a brand new client having to tell you what they need doesn't feel appropriate. But a client that's been with you for years and has this new issue that they're facing, I think it would be pretty bad if you were to say, okay, I'm out because I don't know about this. So you're on your own because people are not just these new treatment issues. They're not just diagnoses. And what you're describing there is also getting your own consultation and learning and developing some new skill sets alongside of that. It's not always going to be possible to, out of the blue, be able to develop a new best practices sort of treatment for these kinds of clients. And that's where handling these difficulties I think we've discussed this in enough episodes before and just kind of a general enough knowledge within the community that we can move on to our next thing on the list here. So one where I think clients often opt out, but I think sometimes for especially those 
therapist pleasing clients, therapists might have to do it is a therapist like relationship mismatch. That there is something in the relationship that just seems to be getting in the way of the treatment being successful. And so sometimes this can be personality wise. This can be things where the agreement on what the treatment plan is isn't the same. It might be things that a client is particularly hoping can be addressed in therapy that the therapist doesn't or won't work on. And maybe to give an idea of something like this is if a Black client is showing up to therapy with issues of depression and wants to talk about some of the systemic causes, especially in the news here in the last couple of years, and issues related to that as being part of the causes towards the particular depressive symptoms of this client, with the therapist only wanting to focus on things like medication adherence and behavioral activation techniques that don't necessarily take into account what the client is asking for in those therapeutic sessions. This has the potential of being in one of those areas where the client's asking for something that the therapist isn't providing. As it's described, this isn't really bad therapy. It's technically sound by using evidence-based practices here. But I'd be hesitant to call this good therapy by any means because the client is expressing a desire to be exploring something that the therapist is completely sidestepping. Well, I think when we look at it that way, this is where folks come talking about redefining therapy or decolonizing therapy. I think there are arguments that's pretty bad therapy when a client clearly is bringing in things that they would like to address and the therapist is refusing to talk about them and not seeking any insight from the client on their methods of healing. And so we'll link to a couple episodes in the show notes that kind of talk more specifically about how you can talk more about those types of issues if those are, that's what your client's seeking out. But yes, I don't think it's unethical or illegal therapy, but I do think and, it's and, and not that's good. that's the wording that that I should use here is that not that particular example, but some of the ethics committee discussions that I see from time to time fall into categories like this where a client is asking for something very, very specific that the therapist is not addressing that doesn't go against an ethics code. It doesn't go against a legal statute that falls under this category of just a really bad client therapist match. And I, I agree that you know, with redefining therapy, reimagining therapy, the decolonizing therapy, by those definitions, that is bad therapy. From a legal and ethical standpoint, there are no legal or ethical codes that define it as such. And so sometimes we'll see client complaints about this that, you know, from a decolonizing or a reimagining standpoint, would find frustration with that therapist not being investigated, not being seen as a somebody contributing to bad therapy. It's because the rules of law, the rules of ethics don't have anything to investigate those against. And therefore, there's no punishment to be given if there's no rule against it.
Appsrisor is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. My hope is that if someone had that type of a complaint rather than putting up a huge defensive structure that they would actually look at what that mismatch was. Because to me, I feel like there are clients who need that seeing that being known to be able to make any progress in therapy. And I think sometimes those clients will opt out and recognize that this therapist is not seeing me, not potentially even doing some microaggressions or macroaggressions. Like it could be something where the mismatch is big and I think bordering on unethical, although I don't know that I have a code, so I won't, I won't go that far. But I think that the problem is that some clients, especially clients who have been, who have identities that have been traditionally marginalized, I think they may not know that anyone would be any different. And so my hope is that if, if a therapist is getting any kind of feedback or having that pushback that they would make that referral to someone who could have those conversations. I just don't feel convinced that that's going to be the case. I feel like that could be a missed, you know, kind of blank spot in their education and their self-awareness. At best, it's in that missed blank spot. You know, there are therapists that we have to admit that are out there who will actively go against and argue against that. And those cases would be very bad therapy. And you know, this is looking at some of those situations too. And and this falls across ideological spectrums here. But when you get into imposing values onto clients for not believing in whatever it is that you believe, that is bad therapy, especially to the client's perspective. Now, I think we're way off of where this episode's <laughs> focus is supposed to be as far as when those situations come up from the therapist side of things, you know, let's give you the credit as a listener here that you're not imposing your values onto clients here. But when those clients do bring up opposite ideas of how you practice the show here, we're big advocates of putting your values out there of the kinds of work that you do. So that way clients can self-select in. But sometimes you're going to end up with clients who don't match up with those things stances on vaccine mandates, mask mandates, these kinds of things that a lot of people are going to have a lot of different ideas about that this might be a mismatch. It's not something that can necessarily be ignored, but it's not necessarily something that's the place of therapeutic focus. Or is it? I mean, I think it's client by client and therapist by therapist. I think the to get us back into 
how to ethically fire your clients part 1.5 or whatever we're going to call it. I think the assessment of is this ideological difference, this mismatch sufficient that you believe you cannot do effective therapy with this client and then referring them out appropriately, I think is important. But I think so, so in your mind, how does that referral work? Like, hey, I think you're an idiot for this thing that doesn't have anything <laughs> to do with you coming in. Like, how, how do you see those referral conversations going? I am not referring someone out because they have an ideological difference. But if they're wanting to talk about things that I have absolutely no experience about, you know, or I don't have a space to, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable in that space and it's not something that I want to subject them to as I find my footing, I might say, Hey, I'm, I'm noticing that these are the types of things that you're wanting to talk about. And it's outside my, my area of expertise. So I want to connect you with somebody for whom that is an area of expertise. And if that client says, nah, I like you enough, we can, we can teach you. Taking that question. I mean, that is, that, that is harder because I don't want to abandon my client. I don't want to be in a place where I'm allowing my own, you know, ideological things to get in the way. But if it's truly an ideological difference, whether it's about political ideology or something along the lines of vaccinations or, or different things, you know, the things that I may have a strong opinion about, but my clients either have a strong other opinion or I think the, the, the one most recently has been kind of vaccine hesitation. I, I, most of my clients are vaccinated, some are not. And for me, I think what I end up doing is I follow the lead of the client and I, I work to identify where their mind is and, and try to understand them. And that doesn't require an ideological knowledge, just trying to understand their perspective and, and look at it doesn't require an ideological knowledge. And I try to determine do I need to know more about this in order to work with them? Or is, is it central or is it not central? So for those clients that continue to bring things up, because occasionally I'll get clients on these ideological stands that are just kind of my rights to not get vaccinated clients mm -hmm. that will, I don't know, get emotionally momentum going in a direction that even in exploring where you're going here, that they'll start to maybe rope you in with like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Don't you agree that people's <laughs> rights are important? That, you know, these half sort of things, do you step in at those times knowing that you're sitting there being like, I don't agree with literally anything that you're saying right now? I think what I've done at different points Sometimes I'll go to psychoeducation and say, I'm hearing you and I hear that you're saying this. One thing that I'm reading is, is this. And so sometimes I'll go to a, hey, let me just add a little bit, little tidbit, not say like, oh, well, I think you're totally wrong, but go to like a tidbit of, you know, I actually did that or, or, or even say, well, I don't know. I actually, you know, that's not something that I've been looking into. Could you share with me some of the things that you're reading? Because then I get a better experience of what rabbit holes are going down. And, I'm not. And, I'm not giving those YouTube links that get sent to me. You know, these thirty minutes. Here's where all of the vaccines things are wrong. I'm not clicking on those. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think there, 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 there's knowledge that potentially you can gain about where someone's heads at when you actually ask them how they got there. 
and not uh, looking at trying to switch it. But I think there are times when just understanding and listening and then providing a little bit of information kind of from outside their information bubble can have an impact. But sometimes it just becomes very clear that there's not common ground. How about for you? How do you manage it when clients are having these gigantic conversations with lots of emotion about things that you think are absolutely wrong? I do a lot of reflecting back, even when there's direct questions back to me. What does this mean for you? How is this impacting your day-to-day life? What can you do with this? It's very narrative approach in a lot of ways. And I have had some successes where clients are like, thank you for listening to me. Maybe you can help me get some perspective on some other ways of looking at this. That is just kind of this being able to validate the process rather than the content of what's being discussed. And I'm afraid that a lot of therapists would get sucked into the content part of these arguments and feel like this is something that I can't help you with. And therefore, I need to go back to what we mentioned earlier in the episode and refer out to somebody who can validate the content of what you're talking about here. Like we mentioned in last week's episode, this is being able to have a really good idea of what your limits are, what kind of impact that the clients are having on you, being able to sit with it. And that's yeah. that's a part that, especially developing therapists, I, I see struggle with a lot because this pulls up a lot of that imposter syndrome stuff, mm-hmm. is just because you're having anxious or bad feelings of what a client is saying, separate from our other fire clients ethically episode, doesn't mean that you're not necessarily providing good therapy in those situations. Just because we want therapy to be easy and us to heal everyone doesn't mean that we're not (laughs) going to run into some uncomfortable situations with clients. I was sharing with one of my other professor friends here recently about some of the role plays that I bring into, especially like practicum classes when people haven't started seeing clients yet and just like getting them prepared for stuff. And of course, I'm going to pick a situations that make the therapist kind of uncomfortable. And it's surprising how few of these I've ever had to make up completely to kind of put, you know, developing therapists on the spot. And when I was sharing some of these with my professor friends, they were like, what kind of a practice do you have? And I go, (laughs) these are pretty like everyday sort of things. These aren't even like the egregious ones. I say all that to say that sitting through a lot of stuff that makes us uncomfortable can have a very deep impact for clients that we might feel mismatched with, but it comes back to attuning yourself to the relationship. Now, at that point, and again, to the thing from this episode that we seem to have veered really far off from again, (laughs) is when we get to those points and it's still not working out, is it time for a premature therapeutic sort of termination? Can I help a client in that situation? Yes. Can everybody? I would like to think everybody has the capability to. Yeah. But if you feel that it is interfering with yourself so much before you get to the point of referring out clients for you feel that the mismatch is so great ethically, what you're going to want to do is have some really in-depth consultations 
that some clinical supervision from some people that are not going to just be part of a Facebook group that you're only able to explain, you know, in a few sentences, what's going on. And the chorus of commenters is going to, you know, give you seven or eight words as far as what you should do, but pay for a good consultation around how to manage it and document that consultation. Not in the client chart though. Not in the client chart, but to protect yourself in your process notes that, you've explored the ways that this impact could be happening with the client. So that way it's not just a rash decision that this is part of the extra work outside of the session that makes you as a better therapist that can lead to trying to provide space for a client to grow. If the results of that consultation are, yeah, you should probably refer this person out you've got some better community understanding and thought process that goes into it. But if there's space for you to work on and address through some of these issues with clients, depending on whatever specific content it is with whatever it is that they're bringing up, a premature termination at that point falls more into bad therapy than it does into providing a good space for them. Making that assessment, I think, can be tough, and I want to get to that, but I, I want to talk about one more mismatch that I think is actually not as interesting as what we've been talking about, but I think it is an important one to put in there, and then maybe we can talk about how do you make the assessment, because I think making the assessment and then having really good consultation, I think, can be very important. But the other mismatch really is style or personality, you know, whether you're a directive therapist, a non-directive therapist, those types of things, I think that those, they actually make a big difference. And I've had clients where they've been able to give me the feedback and I can shift and be less, more or less directive. But I think there's some of us that are just more or less directive. Again, oftentimes when clients are empowered, they opt out themselves. So you're not doing this premature termination, but I think it is important to, to talk about it just a little bit. Absolutely. And as somebody who does fall more to the directive side of things, I tend to advertise to my community, the people who come to work with me. They know that I tend to be more directive, more honest in the way that I put myself out there than maybe some of their other therapeutic experiences. Clients who want that and the values that we put forward here our work is put your values out there, let clients self-select into this kind of stuff. But sometimes clients don't know. They opt in because they think it's a good match, but then you can see them either pushing back against you being directive or shutting down. And I I think the assessment becomes the clinician's responsibility if the client isn't understanding that that's what the problem is. And so those directive therapists out there in this situation would likely have very little problem directing that conversation to that particular problem. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free.
The opposite though, I've seen where the non-directive therapist kind of stay in therapy with some of these clients forever. And maybe this is you and I bias because we're both more directive, but I've had clients that didn't realize that they wanted more than they were getting. And I think non-directive therapy can be hugely beneficial for some folks. Absolutely. But for, for clients that want more, if they don't know that that's the case, how do we recommend that non-directive therapists try to figure that out? I'm going to be totally biased towards the directive end of things. It's <laughs> creating the space for that discussion and really saying personality-wise, that's just not who I am. I can't provide what you're looking for in this situation. That is a really good conversation to have with people because it's either going to lead into, yeah, but I still like you you know, as the therapist. Yeah. But what you're asking for is not something that I can really do or be like, you know, you're asking yeah. a tiger to change its stripes. Like, yeah. At that point, it's being able to then have a proper termination, even if it's incomplete towards therapy goals in order to help those clients get matched with somebody who is going to be able to provide what they want. I think the knowledge that's required for that conversation may be some that either the client's asking for more, the therapist is recognizing that the style isn't matching up. I think sometimes that's not evident. I think people typically can kind of flow together. And if the style is a mismatch, sometimes that's not identified. But I think what can be identifiable is lack of progress on treatment goals or stagnation on treatment goals or the, hey, how are you doing? Very little going on in the, the therapy session that I think therapists, as a matter of course, should assess progress on treatment goals and be able to identify that there are a few different things they may want to assess if therapy doesn't seem to be moving forward. And some of the ways that you can manage that is making sure that you go back and revisit your treatment plan with your clients every so often. And I know that that's a, uh, I was going to say a lot more popular in DMH work, but I don't know that popular is the right word there. Consistent, usual. Re required. <laughs> required. Yeah. yeah, that's probably best. Uh, but for independent practitioners, practitioners who aren't, you know, as adherent to those kinds of contracts or rules that require you to go back to those treatment plans, do it anyway. So that way, these kinds of things can emerge sooner and have conversations with your clients about, hey, we're not making any progress towards this goal. What's going on with this? That does allow for the are we doing things right? Is this something that you would get this better out of treatment with somebody else that makes it more of a joint decision rather than just the therapist being the all-knowing or all scared of having to have that conversation with a client? That honest relationship there is typically really helpful. And when you were talking about that, I was remembering a conversation we had really early on in the podcast with Dr. Melissa Hall. I think it's making your documentation meaningful or meaningful documentation, something like that. But she actually really talks about the clinical loop and how making that a regular part of your process helps you clinically, but it also opens this conversation for folks who aren't quite sure what's not working. Because I think when you're documenting and paying attention, I think that could be very helpful. 
So we've talked about a lot of different things. I think there's, you know, we could go more into a client not making clinical progress as a reason to potentially prematurely terminate. I do want to bring up, though, that sometimes building off of last week's conversation around some of these therapy interfering behaviors, there may be times when even examining it through that lens, when you've consistently had these conversations with clients, that you've sought the outside consultation, you've documented it, the clients continue to break more egregious boundaries, but maybe not to the threatening level of the ones that were discussed in our first episode on firing clients ethically. And these are things where it might be breaking boundaries outside of sessions, showing up at your office and hanging out way too long, disrupting (laughs) behaviors in the waiting room that, you know, it might be couples who start their arguments in the waiting room that are interfering the session that you're having and stuff like that. Yeah. Where those types of behaviors are things that are impacting other people in your practice that warrant really straightforward boundary conversations that if they continue to happen are things that you continue to bring them up. If those conversations that were you suggested last week in the podcast about how this impacts things, and there is an active refusal to follow those or acknowledge that those are even problematic behaviors that are impacting you and especially other clients, that can be a cause that you should very much document quite well as far as you're welcome to services, not in this way. And if these are things that are coming up, here are appropriate referrals that you know we've talked about in termination episodes before, uh, being able to provide, these are behaviors that you're demonstrating. They are impacting me. We have tried to work on them. They are continuing to impact me in a way where I can no longer serve you. I have sought out consultation. I am working on this. And it is agreed that I am going to cause you more harm because of the feelings that are developing than I can benefit you from this point. That is an appropriate referral. And that is an appropriate termination there. The things that come to mind for me. If I don't have the capacity, and that could be strong clinical expertise, but it also could be time. I had a client that I had to refer out because they needed more than I had time to take care of. Sure. If they, if the relationship is not one that there would be an element of abandonment, the feeling of abandonment, abandonment is different than the abandonment of just saying, today was your last session, adios. The treatment alliance, and we talked about this a lot in both of these episodes, but if the the treatment alliance is strong, there may be things that could be overcome that in other situations it would be recommended to refer out. But I I come back to something that I think is going to be very rampant right now, especially for certain types of specialties and certain types of things, is the availability of more suitable resources. Yes. And so maybe as our last point, because we are getting pretty long here, but as our last point talking about, I've made the assessment, I've done the consultation, I've had the conversation with the client, I am unable to keep the client ethically, legally, logistically, whatever it is, 
and I'm having a hard time finding suitable resources to refer them to. At that point, some people keep clients. And I think that there are pros and cons there, but what is our responsibility if there are just no therapists that are capable of helping this client? I think with the accessibility of telehealth now, that this is much less of a problem than it has historically been, that with providers in every jurisdiction now able to provide telehealth easily, that this is going to be where, especially in the private practice end of things, those referrals are more easily found. Higher need, higher severity clients, those being sought out through things like DMH, you're going to have agency policies that you're going to have to follow in those situations. But to give maybe an anticlimactic answer, I don't think that this is as big of a problem here in 2021 as it has historically been described. There are lots of referrals out there. There are clients and therapists who can match across distances now. And that's, you know, one of the things that being more digitally accessible helps to alleviate some of these issues when it does come to providing care for these kinds of clients. So basically the answer was, I'm not going to answer you, Katie, because it's not that big of a problem. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) And so I'm going to actually just put put my spin on it because I do think it actually is still a problem, but I think the problem is not more, is there any available resource? It's is there an acceptable resource to the client? Because oftentimes it does mean having a therapist who is telehealth and they want to be in person or someone who is not maybe as close of a personality fit, but has the specialty and doesn't take their insurance. I mean, there, there are some issues here and I think it's something where, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong in good faith, providing as many as close, good enough referrals to this client as you can and trying to do what you can to do some linkage is sufficient. Yeah. Okay. You should let us know what you think of this episode, uh, especially in our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group, or on any of our social media. You can also leave us a rating and review, and we'll include our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. Also, there is still like hours left for you to be able to get your virtual therapy reimagined 2021 (laughs) tickets. We are going entirely virtual again this year. We had hoped to have some people come out and join us in Los Angeles, but enter in the meme of my fall plans and Delta variant. Yes. But there's still time. You can get those tickets over at therapyreimaginedconference.com. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Renoy. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.